Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Laurie Kay, who is here to discuss her book, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. As the title suggests, Laurie was indeed part of the RKO radio team that went to the Dakota on December the 8th, 1980, and conducted what ended up being the last interview John ever gave, just hours before his murder. Laurie recalls that remarkable day and shares how that December afternoon has affected her whole life. Laurie Kay, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm incredibly well. I'm very, very excited to talk to you. We are here to talk about your book, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper. One of the things I love asking people, especially people that write biographies, is their story in deciding to write the book, because it's, a, I imagine, a big project. It's a big undertaking. What was the moment that you decided that you wanted to, to tell your story and, and start this book? Well, the actual title of my book is Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. And that last part is very important because that explains why I wrote my book. Basically, I have that incredible event to talk about in terms of putting together my memoir. And what took me so long to write it was basically guilt as well as having a super busy career, keeping me from writing my book decades ago. And uh, also I was concerned about my mother being embarrassed. So both her passing and the pandemic finally made it possible for me to write it. So yes, there are a number of reasons it took me nearly 40 years um, since the afternoon spent with John and Yoko to begin writing all about my entire life up to, during, and just beyond that point. Not only was I feeling much too miserable and, yes, extremely guilty to sit down and put together my story on paper, but I was also far too busy contemplating and slowly but surely coordinating my upcoming career change. I was ready to head from radio to print and eventually over to TV and video writing and production. And my freelance and far beyond full-time gigs kept me wrapped up multiple hours of each and every day of the week So sadly, I had no time to even think about concentrating on and coming up with a book. And this was despite the fact that, as I say in my introductory first chapter, my work in TV production had pretty much completely come to a close. Um, Whenever anyone found out that I and our RKO team had conducted John Lennon's final interview, jaws dropped, people gasped. And the inevitable question was asked, when are you going to write your book, Lori? And the answer is now. <laughs> well, I'm grateful that you have because it's a it's a really insightful, really interesting read. And we're going to focus our conversation today mainly around the events with John for obvious reasons for this podcast. Um, but it, yeah, there's, there's lots in there that readers will find out about your life leading up to that, including a few other Beatle-related encounters. So, so let's go back to to 1980 john as most listeners will know was on the promotional circuit has just released the double fantasy record saying that he wasn't on tv much whatever he wasn't plastered over every single radio station at that point there were a few print interviews as as we know what was it about why do you think john and yoko decided to 
to talk to you and at RKO. What was the story of the interview being arranged? Ours was John and Yoko's only U.S. post-double fantasy release radio interview scheduled. I heard a rumor later on that he'd asked Paul McCartney to recommend interviewers that he liked and enjoyed spending time with. Our RKO team had spent quite a full-length afternoon with Paul and Linda and their latest lineup of wings back in June of 79. Who knows if that's really true? Um, thanks to both Bert Keen of Warner Brothers, Geffen Records, who was with us in the interview, and RKO's Dave Sholin, we were able to schedule it and work it out and be their only post-double fantasy release U.S. interview. It was great. What were your feelings in the run-up to the interview? How long before December the 8th did you know you were going to do this interview? It was several weeks, and it was super exciting and unbelievable, honestly. I felt like one of the luckiest people on the planet. I was concerned about asking the best questions I possibly could and not bringing up topics that we were told John would not accept, everything from the Beatles to his past. But because he ended up talking about them all, it was really exciting. I'm sure it was. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the day itself. What are your memories of arriving at the Dakota? How many of you were there? What was it like when you first went into that that famous building in New York? Well, it was the four of us. It was me and Dave Sholin, the other interviewer, uh, Ron Hummel, our producer-engineer from KFRC San Francisco and RKO, and Bert Keen from Warner Brothers Geffen Records. And as we walked over to the Dakota from where our limo left us off, I felt like I was flying in a way. I, I wasn't even standing on the sidewalk. I was I was up in the air. I was so excited. And we got the, to the Dakota and there were a few people standing outside. I was really surprised. I expected there to be a, a lot more Beatles and Lennon fans, to be honest. Mm. Um, so we went into the office and uh, there were John and Yoko's assistants and that was their public office. And we sat there for a little while while they told us, oh, John and Yoko are taking pictures upstairs with Rolling Stones, Annie Leibovitz. And I was immediately freaked out because I had had my own freaking experience with Annie Leibovitz while working in Seattle uh, on the air at, at King AM Radio just the year before. So I thought, oh, my God, please don't have her come down during our interview at all. And thank goodness she didn't. So I didn't have to deal with her. And I tell that story in my book. And um, then the assistant's took us into John and Yoko's private office, which was amazing. From the minute the door opened, my jaw dropped and I was just, it was incredible. Everything from the white shag carpeting that I felt like, oh my God, I should be barefoot on to, they had this coffee table that blew me away. It was huge and long and glass covered. And then the metal legs had man-made serpents wrapped around them. So during the whole interview, I kept looking down at the legs of this coffee table at the snakes thinking, oh, am I really here? And <laughs> yes, I was. It was awesome. Okay. So you're in there and you're you're waiting. Was it a long wait for Yoko to appear? How long were you 
waiting for her? Just a few minutes we okay. waited for Yoko. That wasn't long at all. And once she came, I just got along with her right away. And I felt like I'd made a friend within the first few minutes. And it wasn't just because we were the only women in the room, but just because I had so much that I was getting from her in mm. terms of what she wanted to tell me about double fantasy, about her relationship with John. It was just awesome. You say there that you you kind of formed a, a connection with her. Was she, you must have had a bit of an, of an expectation as to what Yoko Ono was like. Did she fit that bill? What was the initial impression that you got from her when it was just her on her own? Well, I had been a fan of Yoko's for a number of years, uh, not just her music and her art, but her book, Grapefruit, just meant so much to me. So what I did was I brought my copy with me. And when I took it out and showed it to her, when she came in, she was blown away, just like John was when he came to and saw it. They hadn't seen a copy in years. And the idea that somebody would not only be reading it, but carrying it with them, it just excited them so much. And that's why they were both so eager to autograph it. John, too, because he, as he said later, I wrote the introduction. Please let me autograph it. It was like, yes, please, John. And Yoko signed it. And John also drew a great cartoon of the two of them. And it was amazing. That must be something. That must be beyond treasure, that book. It's perhaps one of my if not the most incredible possessions that I have. Okay, so the, the conversation with, with Yoko begins, and then, of course, in walks John Lennon. Um, I spoke to a man called Jay Bergen, who represented John in 1976 when he had the trial with Morris Levy, and he spoke about how he was had a meeting in, in an office and, and he wasn't expecting John to walk in, but when John walked in, he said there was like a... A calm power was the word that that he used. Um, I'm curious to see whether or not that that resonates with you. What was it like when when John walked in and, and joined you all? Well, he walked in about a half an hour after we'd been sitting and talking with Yoko. And the funny thing was, is he just opened the door of the office a crack. And the first thing I saw was his nose sticking through and his glasses. And I started laughing as he opened the door even more. And so I said in my typical smart-ass way under my breath, can't you tell we're in the middle of an interview? And <laughs> he started laughing. It gave him a great sense of humor right off the bat. And he immediately sat down on the love seat right next to me. And I was in awe. I couldn't believe it. There was John right next to me. It was awesome. What were your first impressions of him? What kind of sense of him did you get when he first walked in? John had even more of a sense of humor than I ever expected. And not only that, but he was so complimentary and validating. It was just, it made me feel thrilled and almost like, am I really here? Am I really sitting next to John Lennon? Okay, so then the... The conversation starts, and I think most listeners will probably be aware of of your interview. I, I I dare say a lot of them have listened to it in various different formats over the years. And one of the things that he talks a lot about is family. Now, obviously, he's a newish father at this point with a five year old. 
were you surprised that he he spoke so much about about that when obviously the generally when you go and interview a rock star they talk about music well he discussed family right off the bat because Mm -hmm. dave asked him about his daily life and that involved being with Sean and Yoko. So, of course, that was his family conversation. And then Bert, who had a young son, just about the same age as Sean, chimed in and asked about raising a son. So even though that wasn't my most exciting topic, John was thrilled to talk about it. So I was happy to listen. But, of course, eventually John said, you know, hey, what are we talking about here? Raising children or or music? And I said, yes, John, I want to ask you about getting the urge to make music again. And um, John burst in with his super loud and funny and affectionate reply saying, oh, it came over all of a sudden, love. I didn't know what came over me. And then everybody laughed. I reacted confidently to his endearing response. I said, I know, it was like you were possessed. And John said, I was possessed by this rock and roll devil, you know? (laughs) And that just made me laugh almost all the way through the interview. Did your, as you're talking to him and Yoko, did your uh, emotions, did your feelings change? You must have been quite nervous when you walked in, as, as you've described in the book and you described in our conversation. Did you feel relaxed as the conversation went on? How did your emotions change over the course of your time with them? Well, I was nervous in the beginning because I felt that they were both so intellectual that I wanted to be on the same level if possible. Mm. But Almost instantly, I did. I felt like they both really liked my questions and my comments, especially John, who was so complimentary and kept saying things like, exactly, love, and you're right, and yes. And I felt wonderful. Hmm. You mentioned there that you you had uh, some time with, with Paul previously. I haven't spoken to many people doing this podcast that have met both John and Paul. So it would be sort of remiss of me to ask. John does talk a little bit about Paul in the interview. Did you get any kind of sense of of that relationship when he was speaking about Paul? Did you get anything from that that part of the conversation? I instantly got the feeling how much he liked Paul right away upon meeting him and thought he was so talented when he heard him playing backstage at his own show. And he talked about being an incredible talent scout because of the two major talents that he found and ended up working with for more than just one night stands. And that was Paul and Yoko. Not a bad talent scout, as you say there. We'll leave the detail of your meeting with Paul for readers to find when they get the book. But just another tiny quick question about the two of them. Did you get a sense, having spent time with them both, of the differences between them? Was there um, anything that immediately stood out or at the same time the similarities, having, having obviously spent time with both of them? Well, the similarities hit me the most after I was talking to John for quite a while. Their senses of humor, their talking about their days as young kids loving rock and roll. And, you know, George Harrison did too. So really, that was similar for all three of them. What about the 
the Paul and Linda relationship as opposed to the John and Yoko were there. I imagine there were some similarities when you observed those two couples. They both talked about their children. And of course, Paul and Linda had far more children to talk about. And when I talked to George Harrison, he had just had a baby as well, Danny. Mm. And he talked about wanting to raise his baby and, and how exciting that would be. So once again, more similarities between the three of them. Mm. What was the main sense that came across during the interview of the John and Yoko relationship? It was very strong at this point, although there are, you know, there are always other voices that, that might deny that. What was your observation having spent that that time with them completely together? Their relationship absolutely was very strong. Mm. And when they ended up telling us the detailed story of how they met for the very first time at Yoko's London Art Gallery show back in 1966, which was 14 years before, then their date two years later, spending all night long making music and creating their first album, Two Virgins, it was obvious that they were still totally taken with each other. It was wonderful to hear. That's great to hear. So the the interview itself, it, John is clearly very relaxed and content and happy in the interview that he does with you. Did you get a sense of that? Did you realise, you, you, you know, the, the book makes clear you've met and interviewed lots of different people over your career. You must get a sense of this is going to be a good one early on you must get a sense of that did you get that when you were talking to john absolutely john came off as very secure and at ease which made me feel comfortable because i'm sure he could tell that not not only were we feeling obviously super happy to be there all of us on the team and privileged but we weren't bringing up anything that we'd been asked not to we mm. waited for him to bring it up and that was incredible. And mm. I think he really appreciated that. Was there anything that you think that, that you and Dave did? Was there anything that, was there any kind of direct approach that you took apart from, as you say, making sure not to, to hit the wrong notes? Was there anything that you did in, in particular that aimed to make him and Yoko relax so that you would get the best interview? I don't think he was nervous about being with us at all, mm. which seemed to me very different from a couple of the press interviews that I'd read that he did. They just came off as he was in a much less excited mood. Mm. Um, so that was great. He seemed to like us all personally as much as we liked him. Mm. And we just felt like friends sitting around and talking about things that were important to all of us. So the interview, is it two and a half hours, three hours? Was that longer than you thought? Were you given a set time that you could spend with them? Uh, no, we hadn't been. And we'd been in the office longer. And then after the interview, we were around longer and we made plans to get together afterwards. Mm. So we really felt like we were all becoming friends. I especially did with mm. John and Yoko. That was great. And I guess that was thanks to John's openness, honesty and sense of humor I felt we were surprisingly alike. Everything from our, our love of and time spent on the island of Bali and the eagerness to share it with our friends to our use of the word banana when it came time to describing our kooky personalities. It struck me as, wow, 
he's a friend, maybe mm. a brother. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about the the immediate aftermath of the interview. So he and Yoko signed this copy of Grapefruit for you. What happens then? What happens when you leave the, the Dakota? Well, I should say that before we left the Dakota, another really exciting thing was when John signed Grapefruit for me, I said, wow, that's great. Thanks. And he said something like, well, I'm just like everybody else. I get really excited when people who give me their books sign them for me. Mm. And I said, oh, great, John. When I write my book, I'll sign it and send it to you. And he said, wow, great. And that made me feel so incredible. So I was once again up in the air, not even on the ground as we were leaving. I felt like, like I said, like I'd made an incredible friend. So the four of us left the team uh, before John and Yoko walked out. The guys were going to be giving John and Yoko a ride to their recording studio session um, on their way to the airport. I was the only one staying in New York that night. The three guys were going back to the West Coast. And so the four of us walked out. And right as we walked out, some creepy guy started bugging us and asking us questions. Did you talk to him? What about? What was all that about? Bert wanted to shut him up, figured he was a fan. And so he had an extra copy of Double Fantasy and he gave it to him and he said, here, John, we'll sign this for you. And uh, I was rather surprised, but the guys got in the limo and John and Yoko came out and John signed the album for him, which was very nice of him. And um, then he and Yoko, we all hugged and said goodbye. They got in the limo. I waved. I thought, oh, I wish I was in the limo. I wish I was going back to California tonight, but I wasn't. And um, they left. And the minute I turned around to uh, walk to my friend's office, who I was going to be going out to dinner with, that creepy guy started following me and asking me questions and the same questions over and over and over. What did he say? What was all that about? You know, that kind of thing. And, and I just, I wanted to smack him. I just wanted to get rid of him. And Mm. as fast as I tried walking, he just kept walking right after me. And I turned around and I was going to swear at him and say something nasty and pretend to hit him. But I, I didn't, I just looked at him and I said, go away and um, turned around again. And finally he stopped following me. And unfortunately that's what led to a lot of the guilt I've felt ever since, because what I should have done, I still feel to this day is gone to the Dakota outside office and, and told the guys there, gee, there's this creepy guy and, get rid of him. He shouldn't be here. He's bugging people. And Hmm. hopefully they would have, or maybe they would have called the police to get rid of him. Or maybe they would have even looked and seen that he was carrying a gun in his coat pocket, which I wasn't able to do. Hmm. Sad to say, I I didn't go to the security system when I should have. Well, yeah, I I understand that must be very difficult for you. So, um, We've spoken so far in, in great joyous terms about this day. Uh, unfortunately, now our, our conversation will take a, a bit of a, a, a different term, but I think it's important that we that we have it anyway. So, so tell us a little bit about your 
your movement. So as you say, despite that difficult encounter, you still must have been feeling on a big high at this point. Tell us about your movements for the rest of the day after you leave the Dakota. Where did you go after that? Well, I went to my friend's office and I was beginning to feel incredible. Like, oh my God, this day, I will never forget it. It's awesome. I can't wait to write the special, but we weren't going to be producing the special for a couple of months because it wasn't going to be aired until Valentine's Day. It was going to be an RKO love special, which I was really excited about doing, about being able to take my time and listen to the interview and really put everything into it. So I was thinking about that while I was walking to my friend's office. And when we got there, I sat and I told him how incredible it had been. And then we went out to dinner and I was really starving. (laughs) So it was great to eat. And we went uh, to his apartment that he had just moved into afterwards. And as he was opening the door, I heard the radio on and he said, oh, yeah, Lori, I leave the radio on because just in case somebody tries to break in, I want them to think I'm home. So they'll leave and go somewhere else. And the minute he said that, the music on the radio was interrupted and a news person came on and said, here's a bulletin. John Lennon has been shot outside the Dakota And I gasped, I almost fainted. I ran out into the street and caught a cab because the newscaster said he's at the Roosevelt Hospital. So I I took the cab there and I immediately got out and ran up to the front door, which was a big glass door. And I looked through it. And the first thing I saw was Yoko holding on to obviously a good friend of hers who I couldn't tell who it was at the time, but she was sobbing hysterically. She was frantic. And I looked at her and as much as I wanted to go in and give her a hug and say, oh, Yoko, I'm sorry, everything's going to be okay. Looking at her, I realized it wasn't. I just knew John hadn't just been shot. He'd fatally been shot. I was sure. And so I immediately backed off and went to the phone booth next to the the hospital and called the RKO New York network office where my former news editor, Joe Interante, was now the head and um, told her what happened. And she said, oh, come here immediately. We we need you. We need to talk to you and um, do interviews with you. So I went to the uh, network office and stayed up all night doing interviews with her for RKO stations and with stations all over the country and press interviewers and people all over the world, actually, I talked to on the phone. And it was um, it was just a tragic night for me. How did you get through that night? Where did you find the, were you on kind of like an autopilot? Had it still not not sunk in? How did you find the, the energy even to, to talk about to go through all these interviews? Well, I couldn't sleep because I was so depressed and horrified. And I had this feeling, weird feeling, from the minute I discovered that, unfortunately, I was right, John had died, um, that I knew who the killer was. I felt that it was that creep who'd been following me 
And I watched a couple minutes of the news and he'd already been arrested at that point and it was the same guy. And so I was crying because I immediately felt guilt like sitting on my shoulders and my head. It was awful. So I was up all night doing all these interviews and feeling guilty and horrified. And there was no way I could do anything but talk to people at that point. And at about three or four in the morning, Joe Interante said to me, okay, the Today Show is called and we want you to guest on it for us. Can you do that? And as much as I really didn't want to, I did anyway, even though I knew I looked horrible. I knew I wouldn't be thinking clearly and be able to speak clearly, but I thought I better do it because somebody's got to represent our day with John and Yoko. So I did. As you say, I mean, it's incredibly difficult watching, let alone what it must have been like to actually be in that studio talking about this man that, as we've said, you you were with so, so recently. What was that experience like? How did you find the energy to, to appear on that show? I didn't have the energy. I felt horrified. I felt guilty, plus exhausted, since, of course, I hadn't slept all night and my brain had just been stirring all night. Um, And the Today Show hosts were actually Tom Brokaw and Jane Pauley. And they tried to be understanding, but still their questions were quite hard for me to answer since I was still so shocked and traumatized. And I really didn't know what to say to get my true feelings across. So it was probably the worst interview I've ever done in my life, unfortunately. Mm. How old were you at this point? I was 25. Mm. Incredibly young to, to go through something like that. It's important we we make that clear. When did you get the sense of that? This might be a slightly crass question. I hope it isn't. But did you immediately realise that in amongst all the grief that you're feeling that you'd just done the last ever interview with with John Lennon? Did that kind of enter your head at any point? I did. I realized, of course, that this had been mere hours before he was shot and killed. And that was tragic. And it made me feel thankful in a way that we had been there before it happened, but still horrified. When did you listen to it again for the first time? That must have been quite a difficult experience. Did you listen to it immediately afterwards, after he died, or what was that like? I listened to the interview a number of hours later, because right after the Today Show, I flew back to the West Coast. I immediately had to go to San Francisco and start listening to the interview and writing the special, because it wasn't going to air in February on Valentine's Day anymore. And now it was going to air within a week. So it Mm. did six days later, the Sunday after John was shot and killed. So I had to write and finish the special by about a day and a half later, which was very difficult for me, not just because it was hard to write that much that fast. It was a three hour show, but because my heart was just thumping and hurting and I couldn't sleep anymore at all. I had to get going with it. And listening to the interview made me cry. Um, I devoted the 
special to Yoko, but still there was nothing that could make me feel good about it in a way. Um, I titled it John Lennon, The Man, The Memory, which was tragic for me, made me cry in and of itself. Hmm. And then when the special aired that Sunday and I listened to it with Dave Sholin voicing it and the music that Ron Hummel had put in and his production, I cried all over again for all three hours. Hmm. Has it become easier to, to talk about? Obviously, you must talk about this at the moment a lot because of the book. But has time made it easier for you to to think about, to talk about? Are you Is it any easier for you now than it, it was at the time? Well, it's easier now because more time has gone by and I've been able to think about it a lot more and try and release myself from the guilt that I feel. Um, which hasn't been 100% successful, of course, but I have been feeling somewhat better um, in terms of realizing that that creep probably would have gone anytime, anywhere to try to kill John. And I will say that something that I've stressed for almost 43 years now is we don't say his name. I don't write or print his name because I don't want to ever give him the publicity that he was out to get. So that makes it better for me knowing that I've never done that. Hmm. And it was extremely hard for me to write the book in that sense too, because I had to relive not just that day, but all the time after and remember everything. And it was sad. Mm, absolutely. If someone asked you a some words, some sentences to describe John Lennon, what are the first things that, that come into your mind? How would you describe him to, to someone that had, had never heard of him, shall we say? Extremely talented, an amazing writer, singer, musician, open and honest and extremely funny and complimentary. There are so many wonderful things I could say about him. And that's one reason why December 8th, 1980 is still to this day, what I consider to be both the best and worst day of my life. Because not only did I meet him and get to know him and his amazing personality, but I also lost him. That's a, a really touching and powerful way to end. Laurie, it's been really, really interesting talking to you. I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it hasn't been too difficult for you because it's been really enlightening. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you so very much.